Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. If you break down the amount of hours you spend at work and then add the time you spend running errands, cleaning and paying bills, ask yourself, how much time do you have left to dedicate to something you're passionate about? My guess is not much. And quite often we find ourselves in jobs which don't feed our passion. This can lead to a lack of motivation, frustration, even depression. So how do we do both or should we even try? Siobhan McKenna is one of Australia's leading business figures and is best known for working closely with Lachlan Murdoch. She's currently Group Director Broadcasting for News Corp and is also a Director of Woolworths, among many other roles. Yet she has somehow just found time to simultaneously feed her secret passion for writing and has released her debut novel. And yes, she has surprised more than a few business and media colleagues. Siobhan, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series and congratulations on the book. I stayed up quite late this week finishing it off. It's it's a really ripping read. How did it come about? And was this something that you have had percolating in the back of your mind and in the back of your career ambitions for a very long time? <laughs> oh, thank you, Helen. Uh, I have always loved books and I certainly would have probably as a child expressed a desire to, you know, work somehow with books. But um, I was probably educated to be a little bit pragmatic and so became a business person. But I, I guess I've always done writing and I don't think I ever really thought that I could take one of my short stories or one of my character studies, really, they were, and turn it into a novel um, that seemed an insurmountable task. And so it, it probably wasn't until 10 years ago that Hilary Mantel won the Booker Prize for Wolf Hall. And uh, I read an interview with her and she said that it had taken her five or six years to write Wolf Hall because she hadn't really known anything about Tudor England. Uh, she'd written other historical novels set in um, uh, revolutionary in the period of revolutionary France and she knew that period well so she could write it well. But it had taken her five or six years to know enough and learn enough about Tudor England to write Wolf Hall. And I suddenly had this blinding insight which was that I could recharacterize at that point my entire professional career. I could recharacterize it as research for the setting for a novel. And I didn't need to 
learn about Tudor England. Uh, I didn't need to invent a fantasy world uh, with a new language like Tolkien. I could actually take what I had learned over the previous 20 years and use that to do the world building in which a narrative could unfold. So uh, that inspired me to dust off a character I have sort of sitting in the bottom drawer where I keep all of my different character studies, dust it off and sort of go, okay, I I have a a scene with Charles, the protagonist of um, my book, and I had that scene and I thought, oh, how did he get to his office after completing a deal, um, sitting there feeling so cold and miserable? Uh, how, How does one end up being so successful yet feel so alienated? And then where to from here for him? What what happens to him? What change uh, occurs? What external things happen to him to force him to reassess his life? And I guess that was the sort of 10 years ago and then subsequently took me 10 years to write because obviously I have a full-time job and I have three kids and I'm pretty busy, but I love to write and I've always loved to write. So I guess I just plotted away at it until I had something that I, I, I thought was shareable with a publisher. Do you think you then actively used the last 10 years and all of the business shenanigans that you've witnessed and been a part of as your research? Was it in the front of your mind through all of that? Look, I think that I, I, I've always kept a bit of a, a, a notebook for ideas for writing where I will write down you know, weird and funny things that happen to me because, you know, as people sometimes say, fact is stranger than fiction and someone will really strike me in a particular way or something will happen that will make me think, goodness, I can't believe that just happened. And so I do have a little notebook full of anecdotes of things that have happened. And then, yes, that was a really useful resource to go and mine uh, as it came to all of the world building that happens uh, in any novel, but uh, the business world building that happens in in my novel. If you had your time again, uh, would you have been a writer and not have been a business person? Look, that's a very intriguing question, Helen. Uh, I, I don't know. I think that if I hadn't been a business person, I wouldn't have been able to write Man in Armour. Uh, one of the things that has pleased me inordinately uh, over the last few months is that business people call me and tell me that they loved reading Man in Armour because there's none of the one person said he's a part was a partner at KKR. KKR is a big, um, well, actually they're the original barbarians at the gate, uh, and so I respect his opinion very much. And he said, "Oh, it was such a relief to read this because unlike in Billions or Succession or any of these other." Um, things that we see or read, there's no mistakes in this. This is actually what happens. So I feel that had I not been a business person, I wouldn't have been able to write um, Man in Armour. And if I had, I guess, been um, a writer and followed my love of writing from the beginning of my career, no doubt I would have been a far better writer because I would have spent far more time doing it. But I'm happy with the choices that I've made. I, I love my business career. I'm not um, 
unhappy with the choices I've made as a business person and have very much enjoyed the work that I do. So I, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to change anything. It is utterly fascinating to get an insight into uh, your business life through the pages of Man in Armour. And I will we'll come back to a, a, a bit of that. But was it nevertheless still quite risky and scary to step out of an incredibly successful career, a brilliant CV, you're one of the leading business figures in Australia, and try your hand at something that, as you say, many people labour over for their entire lives? Look, yes, I think uh, I was absolutely thrilled when HarperCollins said that they wanted to buy the rights to my novel. Uh, I felt such a sense of joy uh, and such a sense of achievement that I had written something worthy of publication. I, I, I don't think I would have self-published. I would have thought, gosh, if no one wants to publish this and they're expert in publishing, then I probably should take that as a hint um, that it's not good enough. So I, I felt so proud that it would be good enough to be published. Um, but I don't think I then subsequently uh, felt very much other than overwhelming nervousness, which is that I have been so fortunate in my business career and I've husbanded my privacy so carefully for 25 years and been really very methodical and cautious in you know, building my professional career. And I suddenly was terribly concerned that people in my business uh, life would think sort of worse of me for having um, spent time writing, that they might think, you know, using the old 19th century parlance that I'd become a lady novelist and that that was somehow a disreputable thing to do. So I, I, I was very concerned about that and really nervous. But then I, I sort of took the step back and went, well, you know, do I want to have died wondering? Uh, and one thing I was very certain of is that I work in the media industry uh, and it's an industry where storytelling is appreciated and where are, you know, endeavours that are, whether they're film or music or writing or performing, um, they're all things that are at the core of the media industry. And so it I was going to be publishing um, something into a professional environment that at its core does respect uh, the arts, uh, broadly defined. And so I did remember that and took courage from that and just sort of thought, well, I'd, I'd, I'd rather do this uh, and know than not do it and forever wonder. I think that's such a, a great lesson for people to uh, understand that Sometimes it actually doesn't matter what other people think. I relate to it greatly because I think there are many people who thought that when I decided to start a business, um, that that was high risk and brave and potentially disastrous as well. Uh, but I was very much the same when I did Future Women. I, I didn't want to die wondering, do you still care what people think or do you think you've managed to kind of squish that to some extent? 
Well, I, I care very much what people think of my novel, and that's probably because I'm a beginner as a writer and haven't yet learnt the coping strategies that no doubt uh, writers develop over time. So I, I am very vulnerable to criticism um, with respect to uh, this book and writing. When it comes to my sort of my day job, uh, my professional life, I think I have been very strict with myself about not not caring but doing what I think is the right thing, irrespective of what others are going to think. I'm quite fortunate. I've spent uh, the last 15 years working with Lachlan Murdoch and we have a long time horizon. Therefore, when it comes to making decisions, I, I have the flexibility to think, well, you know, this might be unpopular over the next six or 12 months, but I can see that in five years, it will have been the right thing to do. And uh, therefore being able to take a medium term view or a long term view and bear the short term consequences is something that I have pretty rigorously pushed myself to do. And it's not that I don't care for the good opinion of others, of course I do. But I know that seeking people's good opinion, once you start doing that, you have to do it for every single decision that you ever make with respect, you know, to interactions with that person. And that can really compromise what you think is the right thing to do. Do you think it's a peculiar female characteristic to care a lot about what people think? And do you see colleagues in every aspect of your now diverse career not care as much and be prepared to kind of take a leap and when it stuffs up, you know, they, they move on and make out it didn't really happen. Look, I don't see a difference between men and women uh, with respect to how much they care about what others think. I think I'm surrounded by people who care what others think, whether, you know, no matter what the business setting. Um, what I do think women are potentially slightly better at doing is understanding what friendship is and what it isn't. I think it's a rare person who makes true lifelong friends at work that survives changes in role, changes in company, changes in industry. And what I see women being quite good at doing is valuing, um, and when I say women, I mean women, for example, in business doing, is understanding that um, the friends that they make at work are probably very good colleagues and that their friends are people who, you know, they see at book group um, or they're the friends of theirs from when they went to uni. So women are better at identifying sort of lifelong friends and distinguishing that from good uh, work colleagues Whereas men are sometimes less good at doing that, which is why when men leave their roles as CEOs, they wonder why, and they're shocked by the fact that they're not getting invited to the AFL grand final anymore, or they're not being asked to really exciting dinners at a bank with an amazing chef because they had fallen into the trap of thinking that the people at work who were their good colleagues were indeed colleagues 
uh, and weren't in fact actually friends. So they were role-specific relationships rather than uh, friendships. I think that's an amazing observation and I think it's evident in the, the main character of Charles because he he comes out of a big deal and has that hollowness. So, you know, you've obviously written that particular observation into your chief um, character in the book. What about networking and forming connections? A lot of what I hear and see and attempt to do is to help women make genuine connections across industries because one of the things that I hear a lot is that women get quite busy. They get quite busy with partners and families and running houses and, you know, trying to be excellent at everything they do. They need to bake and clean and uh, and also have the spreadsheet in perfect order. And therefore, they tend to not have the deeper, more, you know, blokey, casual connections that can lead to quite significant allegiances and business uh, discussions that the women are often cut out of. Is what I just said something you relate to or see? Uh, and if so, how does it? How do you think women can combat those particular challenges? I do see exactly what you've described and I've seen it my entire professional life. And the mindset that women have that causes this is a belief that merit is its own reward, that when it comes to uh, getting something done, asking someone to do something, that the other person will say, yes, that's a good idea and I should do it, or yes, it's a, um, a good thing for the business and I should help you do it, uh, i.e. that merit, the, I, the merit of the idea, their own merit as an, as, a, as an executive should be enough to get others to um, do the right thing. And my observation is that merit is not its own reward and, you know, we can all think that it would be great if that would change, um, but, you know, it's unlikely to change dramatically over a short number of years. Therefore, if we accept that that is indeed true, then whether we want to or not, we actually have to accept that uh, building a network of relationships is an important thing. And if we would actually accept that merit is not its own reward, that you actually have to put effort into building a network, then it can transform for people into A to do, on a to-do list and be treated with respect as being a to-do that should be done uh, and then actioned. So busy women who don't have time to network, I think, haven't accepted that merit is in its own reward, haven't accepted that networking is a valid, useful thing to have on their to-do list, and they haven't uh, treated it with the level of effort that's required to make it so. So when I have been talking with colleagues such as you about this for the last 30 years, I've been saying we have to encourage the people that we mentor or the people who work with us in our organisations to explicitly do it and to ask them about how they're going with it 
just as we would ask them how the IT project that they're currently leading is going, just as we would ask them um, whether they'd filled in their performance reviews this quarter, etc. You know, asking about what they have been doing on their to-do, which is networking, helps it become something valid uh, for for people to action. So I guess that's the approach I have sort of consciously taken probably over the last 20 years and I think it, it helps and I think it's worth doing well. When you're mentoring um, women, do you give any particular advice on on how to to network? I, I did a, a, a webinar recently on this topic with... Um, a former guest on this program uh, called Sukato, who is who's exceptionally good at it. And one of the things that came up was for people who are good at it, it's accidental. It, it happens easily. But if you are not good at it, what advice do you have? It's like saying you're not good at filling in your expense claim forms. Like, you know, guess what? Like, I'm not very good at that either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at admin. But that doesn't mean that you can say, oh, well, I'm not very good at it, so oh well. Um, you learn how to be good at it and try. And that means meeting people and then writing down their names and then putting in your contact that they have a daughter who's in year 10 and so that when you next see them in two years' time, you'll be like, oh, wasn't your daughter, isn't she finishing uh, school this year? How is she going with HSC? It means then keeping in contact with people and there's so many ways to keep in contact with people. You know, so I think the excuse of some people are natural at it and the rest of us are not is a poor one because (laughs) maybe everyone's poor at managing their expense claims, right? Or maybe everybody's poor at diary management but we, we all have to become good at it because it's a thing worth becoming good at and... Yes, there are lots of tools and tricks and techniques, but it mostly just requires discipline. Quite often our job doesn't align with our passion and we are too tired at the end of the day to practice our passion. What advice would you give to women listening who are slowly losing the time to practice their passion? Well, I think a passion is something that is restorative, not something that's draining. And therefore, if something is a passion, then making time to do it makes us feel better. And I know that for me with writing, people have said to me, gosh, how can you have been writing when there's so much else going on in your life? But for me, I don't think at 11 o'clock at night oh, God, I'm just so tired, I have to go to bed. Instead, I think, oh, gosh, I can't wait to sit down and edit the start of that chapter. I've had a new idea about it. And that's because it is my passion. And I find doing that brings me joy and makes me feel more, well, makes me feel more happy. And I imagine it's the same for people who... And meditate or whatever, you know, whatever someone's passion is, doing it is restorative rather than depleting. Let's talk about Charles. I'm completely fascinated by uh, the hollowness of Charles um, because he does, he has his, the world at his feet. He's extremely powerful. He's the man in the room that people look to 
for the solutions. And in one of the opening chapters, he arrives, the deal's going belly up. There's dozens of men. They're pretty much all men. In fact, they are all men in the room. And they all know the moment he walks in, he's going to solve the problem. And yet he is so damned miserable. Siobhan, how many men in business or people in business do you see that are that unhappy with themselves? With Charles in Mananama, I I wrote him so that the reader could see what was happening inside of him and see his thoughts. And I think the interesting thing about Charles is that he wouldn't present to people in his life as being miserable. So I think the the question is, are we all wearing masks? Um, do Are we known by our colleagues or our friends or even our families? And do we often have an internal life that others don't understand? And so my observations about Charles are that indeed there is this alienation between Charles, who is, as you say, really quite disheartened by his life and by the choices that he's made and he doesn't know how to affect change in his own life, while at the same time he's very powerful, uh, very pleased with the powerful exterior that he projects. So he's really quite pleased with his armour. He's worked on it, he presents really well and he kind of likes it, how it looks from the outside, but he recognises that there is this alienation between that, how the world sees him and how he sees himself. And I I couldn't help think throughout the, the book that that would be the case for the vast numbers of very successful people. I think that's right. I, I didn't, um, well, I don't actually think that this is a problem peculiar to the business world. I think that people who strive for success and who are prepared to pay the price associated with success, which is intense work, um, a certain degree of ruthlessness, uh, you know, intelligence and a drive for success, those characteristics aren't specific to people who are successful in business. I think they're specific to people who succeed. And we see that in I think we see that in politicians, we see that in medicine, uh, we see it in science, uh, we see it in sport, you know, any athletic endeavour. To be the best requires a level of dedication that only few are prepared to deploy. And so while this is about a business person, I think it, it would resonate across all fields of endeavour. Yes, and that's why I wanted to um, highlight it because this audience is a predominantly young female audience that uh, is on a path to leadership roles, big or, big or small. It's largely irrelevant whether they're big or small, they're, they're leadership roles. And we're asking them to think about how they go about that, but also about how they project and how they live, I guess, uh, a life that is successful in a well-rounded way, not necessarily just in the uh, in terms of the the CV. What sort of leader do you think you are today? And has that changed as you've gained wisdom and experience? <laughs> Look, 
I don't think I've gained all that much wisdom or experience. Um, I'm 48 and I think in the back of my mind is that we all live till, well, so women do, live till we're 100. Uh, and I actually love, you know, obviously I don't love work all of the time, but I love working and doing things. So I kind of am expecting that I'll be doing things professionally for another 30 or 40 years. So I would hope I'd have much more wisdom uh, in another 30 years' time. But I think one of the things that I explored in Man in Armour is what kind of leader do you want to be? Do you want to be a, a leader who's renowned for ruthlessness or a leader that always succeeds uh, and are you prepared to sacrifice friendship uh, and family in the pursuit of those professional goals? And I think, Helen, both you and I would say, gosh, uh, no, uh, that's, that's not a path to happiness. And when I think of myself over the years, you know, I have um, at times, I'm quite sure, put far too much emphasis on professional ex success at the expense of other types of happiness. And that's a constant juggling act. And um, I don't know that it's possible every day to get the answer right. And, you know, I look back on my career and I think, gosh, if I could have just you know, spent more time doing X or more time with Y, uh, things would be better. But I guess I have to take a longer term view and say, well, over, um, I don't know, 50 years of professional life, presuming I have another 20 or 30 more, will I have over time been the right leader at the right time? Um, well, hopefully, yes, on average. Um, but for all of us every day, we have to make choices and some days we get that balance wrong. You sit on a number of boards and therefore you consider the leadership skills of the CEO and you're constantly looking at succession planning. What sort of characteristics do you want to see in a, in a leader these days? So I think um, a... Uh, you know, a major shift has occurred over the last 30 years. When I entered the business community in the early 90s, most organisations were what I would call command and control. They were a pyramid, you did what you were told and commands were issued uh, from the top and cascaded down through the organisation. However, we've lived through a period where enormous success has emerged at organisations where that command and control structure was not in place. Um, and we now expect organisations to operate differently. We expect them to get the most out of every single person who works in the organisation, whether that's full-time or part-time, whether they're a creative person or a financial person or a functional expert. So we now have much higher expectations of what an organisation can 
do and what it can be. Therefore, the kinds of leaders we're looking for these days are really very different to those who emerged at the top of organisations, at least in the late 80s and 90s. And that's unambiguously a good thing. Um, We're looking for leaders who have um, a capacity to influence and inspire, not merely issue orders. And I think that's to the advantage of women uh, because... Um, that means there's more leadership styles uh, open uh, to be explored and uh, exploited. Let's talk about imposter syndrome. You've written a book, you've had an incredible uh, business career. Have you ever suffered from imposter syndrome? Um, Yes, of course. In fact, I think I would suffer from imposter syndrome every minute of every day if I allowed myself to. Um, But... You know, it's, it's not a very helpful thing um, in imposter syndrome and no matter how much positive feedback we get, many of us, most of us, um, suffer from a feeling of inadequacy. So I think one has to make a decision to not think about it and, of course, organisations can do things uh, to help people suffer less imposter syndrome I get upset when women tell me that they fear they've only been appointed to a role because they're a woman. And I think, oh, goodness, um, that doesn't really happen in any organisation I'm involved in because we, you know, it's so obvious we're always appointing on merit. So when you get a role, everyone's just thrilled for you and everyone says, gosh, that really made sense. But in some organisations, obviously, the problem is more acute and... I feel really sad for women when they say, gosh, I'm not feeling um, well supported in this role. And then that generally translates into imposter syndrome. But my observation about imposter syndrome is that we should all recognise that the roles that we have, the titles that we have, are just that. It's like the, um, this might be... It's a literary reference, but um, the novel by William Golden, Lord of the Flies, is about some boys who get stranded on a desert island and they're a bit of a gaggle. They're in their early teenage years and they they decide that whoever's holding the conch shell gets to speak. Uh, It's one of quite a sort of a famous um, analogy that then gets used in other circumstances and I'll use it now, which is... If you have been made the head of sales, someone has given you the head of sales conch shell and therefore you should use it. Titles and roles at work are just that. They're titles and roles that you then need to use and exploit because you're in that position of power relative to the rest of the organisation and you should use that. Uh, There's no reason to not take that conch shell hold meetings, um, make appointments, make decisions. And imposter syndrome is when you think you don't have the right to use that conch shell. And I would say to anyone who's been given a conch shell because they've been appointed to do something, that if you don't use the conch shell, then you're kind of crazy. You're missing out on a whole bunch of the benefits that come from being in that role. So rather than angsting about whether you should have been given the conch shell and someone else should have been given the conch shell, accept it's in your hands and then use it for all it's worth to affect change, to do the right thing, to make decisions, to run things as you would like to see them run. 
I think, again, that's great advice because you're right. You, you, you find yourself in conversations, circular conversations with people saying, oh, but that person over there would be better and why didn't you give it to her or him? And like, the, by, by the time you've gone through all of that, half the day's gone past and you could have made a decision and moved on. Um, I think the same about decision-making as well, Siobhan. I, I feel like often making a decision is just, it's just a decision. You just do it and you're going to get some of them wrong. And the moment you kind of accept that there'll be a wrong decision and not everything you do is going to be incredibly brilliant. Um, but if you can kind of come to terms with that, then life does get a little bit easier. Mm. Look, I think that's I think that's true. People who people avoid decision, and sometimes it's because they don't, you know, they're avoiding responsibility. And some organisations punish those who take risks, punish those who take a risk, make a decision, it doesn't work out. And if you're working somewhere like that, well, of course, you're not, not going to want to make decisions, but that's probably a strong hint that you should leave that organisation and go somewhere where you'll be valued. Because as you say, a decision is a decision is a decision. It's no more or less than that. And not deciding is a decision. People who don't like making decisions often fail to acknowledge that making no decision is actually a decision. It impacts all of the people who would have been able to do something or not do something if a decision had explicitly been made. So this sort of avoidant behaviour um, impacts others and is in itself a decision. Uh, our interview with Anna Bly goes through some of these um, some of these challenges in, in, in greater detail and I'd encourage anyone who's interested in this particular aspect of leadership to, to have a listen to, to that interview because she's excellent at it. Who in the book, and this is a question without notice, but who in the book is um, most like you, do you think? I, I don't think I've given that a lot of thought. I feel I know each of the characters in Man and Armour well, but they seem like real people to me. Um, I've been living with them for more than 10 years and I know them very well and none of them is good and none of them is evil. They're all hopefully human, which means that they're full of a bit of bit of both. And I don't think any of them is particularly like me. I'm going to say David. Oh, right. That's my guess. David is the young up-and-comer who goes out on his own mm. and breaks his boss's heart. That's right. Um, well, I would very much like to be David. <laughs> <laughs> in the sense that he is brave and decides to take a risk in his career. It's obviously inspiring because he takes a bunch of other people from the organisation with him. So um, I'm complimented that you would think that I'm like David. Well, the question was a bit loaded because I was thinking, you know, obviously, you know, you're not, you're not directly in any of them, but uh, I, I feel that he... He is the character that is the bravest and follows his own passion. And you have had, a, as I say, a great career and then follow your own passion into uh, writing writing a novel. And um, congratulations on doing that. And thank you so much for sharing your time today. I am looking forward to seeing what's next for Siobhan McKenna. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Helen. It's been a delight to speak to you as it always is. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer 
Jenny Goggin, Sound Production by Darcy Thompson.